Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims of survivors of crime here in the state of Vermont as well as across the country. We are sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont, and my name is Anna Nassett, and I am your host of this bi-monthly podcast and show. And I am delighted and honored today to have Tom Tremblay here to talk about trauma-informed investigation, practices, working with victims of crime, as well as offenders. As you know, this show takes a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crimes. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources not only in our state, but throughout the country that could benefit victims and survivors of crime as they begin to mend. I always want to offer a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, sometimes we hear stories of sensitive subject matter, and I urge you to listen at your own discretion. As I said, it's my pleasure to have Tom Tremblay here today. Um, if you work in the victim service field, you're probably familiar with his work. And I am so fortunate and honored. This is my first studio session with a live guest in over two years, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So a little bit about Tom through his extensive biography, but um, through his distinguished 30-year pol pol policing career as an officer, detective, Special Investigations Unit Director, Supervisor, Police Chief, and State Public Safety Commissioner, Tom Tremblay has been a passionate leader for the prevention of domestic and sexual violence. He is a retired Chief of Police from Burlington, Vermont, and the former Commissioner of Vermont Department of Public Safety. Tom is now a national and international advisor and trainer for police, prosecutors, advocates, higher education, the military and government, and the private sector. Tom is a contracted subject matter ex expert on domestic violence and sexual assault for numerous organizations, including the International Association of Police, the Police Executive Research Forum, Alliance for Hope International, and Violence Against Women International, and Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, um, as well as many others, and the U.S. Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, and Office on Violence Against Women. Tom is a faculty member of the IACP National Law Enforcement Leadership Initiative on Violence Against Women Crimes, and he is a national leader in development and delivery of trauma-informed sexual assault investigations training. He is highly sought after as an international speaker and trainer, and most recently received the esteemed Visionary Award from Avawi for his efforts to end violence against women, recognizing him for his bold vision, courageous leadership, honor, integrity, empathy, self-advocacy, and generous partnership. Thank you for being here today, Tom. Thank you, and it's exhausting <laughs> to listen to all that. I apologize for it's that. It's wonderful. But, um, and, and thank you for mentioning the award. It was such an honor, um, and that's where we met. So it you, is. you've been in Vermont for, I think, about five or six years. Around the same time you came here, I've kind of pieced it together. I, I happened, my wife and I moved to Florida because of my business and my travel, mm -hmm. and I kept hearing, you've got to meet Anna, you've got to meet Anna, and... And we vice had, versa. And, and you, know, you apparently heard stories about me, and we had to go all the way to San Francisco to meet each other. So yes, yes. I believe I kind pleasure. of fangirled out a little bit in the coffee line. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Tom. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it was a pleasure to finally meet you, and um, thank you for inviting me. For yes, show. and just thank you for your decades of leadership and work and just how much you've done to really start to push the systems in the right direction. I know that many people listening here today, including myself, our benefits and um, sitting here living because of that. So thank you. Thank you. So with you here today, like, could you just start by sharing a little bit with our listeners how you came to working in law enforcement and a bit of that journey and 
how your time specifically with the Burlington Police Department opened up your eyes to this concept of trauma-informed care? Uh, it's, a, it's always a, a question I get, um, and you know, it's it's a matter of a whole bunch of different experiences about what got me into policing. But I'll I'll kind of condense this a little bit and and tell you that I grew up in a wonderful family that taught me great values um, and ethics. Uh, you know, uh, my my mom uh, is the uh, strongest, most courageous, uh, and resilient person on the planet from my perspective. My dad was a World War II veteran. He served in the United States Army Military Police from the greatest generation. He taught me about work ethic and justice and fairness. Um, and, uh, you know, I had uh, siblings, uh, you know, four sisters and a brother who all, you know, helped me understand who I was. Um, uh, and then uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, uh, a tragedy happened in our family. My mom's brother was murdered in California. So and as an 11 and 12-year-old boy, that had a big impact on me. I didn't understand it. I knew somebody had done something terrible to my uncle. Um, but what I saw was the impact that it had on my mom, my grandparents, and my entire family um, in the years following. Uh, fast forward, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to get out of high school, and I'm not ready for college. College isn't ready for me, from my perspective. Uh, and, um, you know, my dad uh, mentioned the U.S. Army, the Military Police Corps, and I, um, uh, you know, I, all of those things connected for me, and I said, this is a chance for me to do work um, that uh, may be helpful may mm -hmm. make a difference in someone's life, especially after seeing what I saw my family experience in that. And so uh, I joined uh, the military, military police, spent three years there, provided me a fantastic foundation uh, for, you know, what ends up now being a 30-year career in policing and 11 years as an advisor uh, and trainer wow. in policing. Um, and, you know, when you know, the second part of your question is around the trauma piece, um, you know, working with victims uh, every day um, as a patrol officer, but then as a detective, uh, and then as a special investigations unit investigator and, and director, I saw the trauma every day. I saw the pain every day, and not just the victims and the survivors, but in their families. Um, and it, it just, it really, all of that connected for me. And um, if I can make a difference in anyone's life, it should be for all victims and survivors of crime. Um, and so that just kind of became a focal point of all of my work. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that every single guest that I've had on here, you know, when I ask, you know, how did you get into this work? We all have a story. Yeah. That isn't a good story. It's not a pretty yeah. story. It's not a happy story. <clears throat> but what we've all chosen to do with that. Right. Um, and how that shifted our careers and our lives is just such a testament. And so thank you for yeah. sharing that. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and, and Kath and I, my wife, talk about this all the time in all of our travels, all the work that we do nationally and internationally. Is we've met so many fantastic people that do this work. And you're right, they all have a story, or many of them have a story. Mm -hmm. um, and many of them, you know, speak with great power as a result of, the, of their experiences. And so, and I consider you one of those. Well, thank you. So. Right back at you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, I'm really curious about trauma-informed care, specifically when it comes into investigation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I really consider you at the forefront of leading that nationally and internationally. Um, how did you... You know, you said a little bit about how you came to really identify that there was a bigger need. Yeah. 
How did you begin to implement that, and what what is trauma-informed care for our listeners? Um, great question. Uh, trauma-informed care is a strength-based service delivery system that's really grounded in the understanding of the impact of trauma, what someone's experiencing. And from my perspective, uh, throughout my career um, and uh, throughout my work nationally and internationally, we have misinterpreted trauma, especially in the criminal justice system. We've looked at somebody and said, why didn't they report right away? Mm -hmm. You know, why didn't they fight? Why didn't they run? Why didn't they scream? Why didn't they do something different? Why did they? Why didn't they? Which is one way of blaming. We hear so much blame for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and the like. Um, as opposed to saying, why did the offender, why did the defendant do this? Um, and so we've misinterpreted trauma. And, and so trauma-informed care really came to be, uh, you know, within the criminal justice system really only eight or ten years ago. We started talking about it. Um, I have had the great opportunity to work with Dr. David Lisak, uh, one of the kind of, he's kind of credited with finding uh, or, or terming uh, the neurobiology of trauma, what's happening in the brain and the body during a traumatic event. I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Rebecca Campbell, uh, again, someone who really, really forwarded the work around trauma-informed approaches to specifically sexual assault from her work in Michigan. Uh, and then most recently, Dr. Jim, Jim Hopper, uh, mm -hmm. who you saw in San Francisco. So I've had the opportunity to work with all of these folks, and they're far brighter than I am, uh, for sure. But when you listen to the science and the research, and I'm sitting there connecting all the dots, this is, this is what I saw in interview rooms. This is what right. I saw at crime scenes. This is what I saw in courtrooms. Um, we were misinterpreting trauma, and, um, and that had obviously negative consequences. Uh, impacts on victims and survivors of crime. And so um, we were always told to be sensitive and empathetic, and I think that I always tried to be that way. And sensitivity and empathy is critical, but now the science helps us understand why. That if we understand the impacts of trauma, one, we won't misinterpret it, we won't dismiss a case, we'll take that case seriously, mm -hmm. or we'll start by believing that case and not dismissing it because of someone's reaction or behavior during and following a traumatic event. Um, so that was a big piece of the work that uh, I think we, we really had to, to work through. Empathy and sensitivity, again, is critical, but it's the science that helps us understand why. Right. And then the second piece to that is that what we're, one of the things that we're really trying to do in this work is get police and prosecutors and all of us to understand that we can contribute to someone's long-term healing. And that is a measure of justice as well, right? Absolutely. So I don't think we, the police, kind of looked at ourselves that way. I always did. I always wanted to try to, again, goes back to my, the values I was taught, respect and dignity for everyone. And um, so I always wanted to try to deliver that, but we didn't call it trauma-informed care. So trauma-informed care, the, the cornerstone of this is recognizing that someone's likely been through trauma. They need to feel physically psychologically and emotionally safe in our process. But we were trained to run in and ask a thousand questions yep. before someone felt safe. Yep. So we're really changing the lens. And what we're trying to get folks to understand is we're not asking victims to provide a statement. We're not asking victims to testify in court. We're really asking victims to re-experience their trauma. Yes. That's what we're asking. <clears throat> 
And you can see light bulbs go off when I train police and, and they kind of, they, oh, nobody ever explained it that way. That's what we're asking someone to do. And until we may help them feel physically, psychologically, and emotionally safe in our process, they're going to really struggle with that. Yeah. And if they do feel that, they do feel safe in our process, they're probably going to be able to provide more helpful information because they're not on the defensive, right? They feel safe with us. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to get a better interview. Uh, it's going to result in a better investigation. And hopefully, they're going to experience less trauma in our process. And we're going to contribute to the long-term healing that we know trauma you know, can be lifelong for so many victims and survivors. Absolutely. That's, that makes so much sense and is really, I mean, it is so true. Like if you're in that position, when you feel comfortable, it's just everything changes. Um, when you have like even the slightest sense of empowerment, if you're a victim yeah. being interviewed in a time when you have absolutely no choices and options, it, it just changes everything. Yeah. And, yeah. and it seems like especially with your background in law enforcement, you're really the perfect person to go out and train law enforcement. You know, sometimes when I when I hear the doctors talking about neurobiology and trauma, like my little brain's like, "Woo!" Yeah. Who well, I can't quite get there, but you know, listening to someone who speaks more my language, I'm like, "Oh, okay, this all right. makes sense. Like, right. I can connect all the dots." Yeah. So when I listen to you know, the, the, the science really is fascinating, mm -hmm. right? What we've learned about what happens to the brain and body during a traumatic event is truly fascinating. Um, but I think what what was easy for me to do was to be able to recognize the own, my own trauma that I had experienced in my life and in my career, working with victims who've experienced trauma every day, and then connecting the dots and, and saying the science and what I see every day working with victims and survivors, it's consistent. Yeah. It's that aha moment where you go, oh, okay, this, this, the science, the research, and now what I see every day in, in someone who's experienced trauma, it's the same thing. Absolutely. Incredible. And yeah, and then you do have to also untangle your own trauma, because especially in that role, yeah. you know, within law enforcement, you're, you're seeing trauma, you're secondary, experiencing it all day, every yeah. day, and being able to tease that yeah. all out is really important. Another really big important part of trauma-informed care, the way that I teach it, is just that. Whether you're law enforcement, prosecutors, advocacy, you know, uh, the secondary, the vicarious trauma that we experience in, um, in this work. The, we're always dealing with conflict. We're always dealing with trauma and emotion. That has its impact. And it, mm -hmm. and it really has an impact, um, you know, over the course of your career. You know, Absolutely. you may not feel it when you're right in the middle of it. But um, as someone spent 30 years in this career, I can tell you it's, it, it compounds over time. So another big piece of trauma-informed care is getting... Uh, officers, prosecutors, advocates to understand trauma starts with understanding our own trauma. How can we expect any one of us across the allied professionals who deal with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, how can we expect any of them to understand someone else's trauma if we don't start by understanding our own trauma? Yep. And, um, and so, um, you know, that's that's a big piece of the work that I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of comes back to what I said at the beginning. You know, when we when we get into this work because we've experienced a traumatic event, which is very common within this field, to then be able to untangle that and say, you know, I'm not doing this work to heal yeah. that. Like, I need to heal that on its own. And yeah. I know for myself, like, I don't do, I do very little direct advocacy because I know that I'm like, I that's not the where I need to be. Like, that's no. not going to be a healthy place for me. And yep. So I think it's important for us to untangle all you of are, those things. You are so right. Yeah. 
So I do know that the majority of your work is around sexual assault, domestic violence, and gender-based crimes. These topics that are especially, you know, when you were getting started, a lot of law enforcement and men would shy away from them. Um, so how did you push forward with that work? And how have you seen systems and responses change over the years? Oh, that's, that's fantastic. It's a, um, well, it's a bold thing to do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, first of all, I, I think it's fascinating that you recognize that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I started doing this work around gender-based violence, uh, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, um, the overwhelming majority of the victims are, are, are women. Um, but let's make sure we, we say this correctly. Mm -hmm. The overwhelming majority of those who offend are men. And we can't change that, right? right? We can't get defensive about that. And I'm not here to bash my gender, but I'm here to recognize that there are good men in this country who do good work and don't abuse. But we also have to acknowledge that this abuse oftentimes comes at the hands of men's violence. Mm -hmm. And so I was oftentimes the only man in the room in the 80s. Oh, I'm sure. And, I, you know, I'm so fortunate, um, Anna. I learned so much from victims and survivors. I listened carefully. And one of the very first things I did when I became director of this unit, advocates uh, from our community said, Tommy, you need to hear what their experience is in, in, in that reporting process. And I met with uh, victims and survivors who had reported to the police and been through the process. And I will never forget, a survivor said to me, um, there was no justice in anything you did. And I said, okay, well, we didn't make an arrest. We didn't get a prosecution in the case. And sometimes that, that happens. I'm so sorry. And she said, no, you don't understand. There was no justice in anything you did. And as someone who you know, really cares about uh, the core of what we do is justice, or mm -hmm. should be. That went right to my heart. Um, what do you mean there's no justice? And she said, I was, the way that I was treated, the way that I was talked to, um, uh, it caused more harm. Um, it's, it's been as painful uh, as the assault itself. And that just cut to the core for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, we got to get better. We got we to do better at this. And then it was systems-based advocates um, and community-based advocates in the early 80s that really took me aside and said, you know, Tom, we appreciate your passion, your energy, but you don't know anything about these crimes. You don't know anything about its impact. And so I said, help me understand. Mm -hmm. So I really, the work that I do today, and you've heard me speak everywhere I go, I credit victims and survivors who taught me. But I also credit the advocates in my community who helped me understand the complex nature of these cases and, you know, why it was so important. Uh, you know, women have been saying the same things. I'm basically repeating what, what, what women uh, advocates shared with me back in the early 80s. Um, and uh, again, uh, this goes back to that gender-based uh, bias, perhaps. Uh, but as a man, um, I can say things that um, that other men aren't as defensive about. And absolutely. I, I, I absolutely dislike that about my work. Um, so I'm a, I'm a white man, uh, and I recognize my privilege. And I try to use my privilege to help others uh, understand the dynamics, the complex nature of sexual violence and its impact. Its impact on women. And not to lose sight of the fact that it's, it's, it's men, oftentimes, who are committing this violence. Right. And we can't lose sight of that. No, we can't. And, you know, I just really credit you for being someone who listens and, like, realizes that things need to change. 
and understands that you are in a unique position where some people will listen to you where they might not listen to me. Yeah. And, you know, and that's yeah. just how it goes yeah. sometimes. <laughs> it is. And, and I don't necessarily <laughs> like it, but, but we have to recognize it. It's and, so true. And, I, you know, I, yeah. and it's the same thing in, in almost anything, really. Um, you know, cops want to hear from cops. Advocates want to hear from advocates. Prosecutors want to hear from prosecutors. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's the, it's the, what I call 360 degrees of learning. When we come together as a multidisciplinary team and we all learn from each other, we get better for the victims and survivors we deal with, we get better mm -hmm. for our communities, and we hold offenders to a higher level of accountability, which makes for, for, for greater public safety. Yeah. So it's that working together that's so critical. It's critical, because you can't do this work alone. Like, if you're just a, you're an investigator who's not willing to work with anybody else, yeah. then where does it go from there? Yeah. Or the same with an advocate or prosecutor. Like, you have to be working together. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what makes all the difference. Um, do you have, you know, a story or example that you could share about how you've seen your efforts, have you, how you've seen the efforts and impact of your work play out um, and what communities can do to improve, but just something that's maybe sticks out in your mind. Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, I go back to uh, what I said earlier about all the victims and survivors I worked with. You know, there's some cases I wish I could have back. There's some cases that, um, you know, uh, weren't uh, successful uh, from any perspective. We always tried to. I always kept that voice in the back of my mind that there's justice somewhere. Um, and it might not be in an arrest. It might not be in um, a conviction. Um, but let's try. Each one of us have an opportunity to deliver some level of justice. And so that, that's something that's always the voice in the back of my mind um, for these cases. But as I said earlier, uh, my wife Kathy and I, that we do this work together. And we've traveled all over the place. And we've met some great people. And so that's a reward of this work. Mm -hmm. um, I get uh, email or telephone calls from someone that I conducted a training on. Hey, we just uh, had this case. Here's what happened. We used this, this, the tools and the skills that you provided, and we were able to get a conviction. Or um, I get feedback all the time uh, mm -hmm. from people all over the country uh, that will thank me for going to the training. That's that is you know I, I want to you know great uh, I got great recognition and you know being awarded the visionary award from Avawi, but it's the individuals that I train and that I talk to uh, on a regular basis that say we just made a difference for a victim and survivor in Nebraska in yep. Colorado wherever the case may be. Yep, uh, I get those calls regularly from cops or prosecutors. Um, I, I just uh, heard from a survivor um, just last week on a, um, who uh, I, I did a project with uh, Colorado Springs Police Department. They're doing okay. some great work around trauma-informed sexual assault response. And we brought a, a survivor in to speak to the officers. This is something that I've been doing since the 80s, bringing survivors in to help police understand how we can get better. Mm -hmm. Again, the power of survivor voices. She yeah. just sent me an email last week um, thanking me again for the opportunity to find her voice. And uh, she described in an email, um, you know, last week just that she's finally found her voice and the whole thing is a result of being empowered to share her story in front of all of these police officers in this training. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. You, you know this well. <laughs> it's but not it easy. was the first time that she did it and yeah. you know she's giving me credit for for empowering her to do this and and finding her strength and her voice and her power, mm -hmm. getting her power back. That's you can't that's a reward, right? 
I'll take yeah. that every day. Amazing. Um, and then I would say uh, the other two most common things that happen in my training, my guidance, and, and my consulting work is uh, police officers will say to me, Tom, why didn't we have this training 10 years ago? I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, what do I need to do? And, um, you know, now that you know better, do better, right? Yeah. Um, we, we talk about that a lot. Um, so that happens a lot. Uh, and then the other thing that happens, every training I do, a victim or survivor will come forward and thank me for what I'm doing. That's enough to keep me going. I, yeah, you know, exactly. I, I, uh, I've been doing this work a long time. Sometimes I feel like I repeat myself. I have to say the same things over and over again. But when a victim survivor especially comes to me, and it happens every training, thanks me for what I'm doing, thanks me for helping make sense of what happened to them, mm -hmm. Helps, uh, thanks me for helping make sense you know, in the criminal justice system to making sure we're not misinterpreting trauma. That, that is a reward that inspires me, yeah. uh, re-energizes me, and keeps me going. Because you can see I'm getting old and tired. So, nah. uh, so uh, <laughs> you know, but it's that, that feedback I get all the time that's just so inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we don't do this for the applause or whatever, but we do it because it makes a difference. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, that's, that's exactly. it's really that that's simple. Exa and it's that simple. Yeah. I kind of am always like, you know, if one person's life is better because of this, that's enough for me to keep going. Yeah. So, and yeah, and to be able to see those things of how systems are shifting and changing. And yep. I just had that recently. I was helping out a friend who was dealing with a stalker and, um, so we had to report it. And when I had reported to the same agency five, six years ago, like nothing was done. It was, I was just about laughed out of the station. And to see how this officer responded now, like complete believability, such professionalism, like just did everything I could have ever recommended. He had no idea I was a stocking expert. So it was even yeah. funny. I was like, yeah. he has no idea. But like everything was done correctly. Uh, it's like, great to hear. boom, that's where it is. Yeah. Like that's where you can start to see this we are, work. We're making progress. Yeah. We and are. it's just, you just it's kind of have to rewarding. keep going. And yep. yeah. More work to do for sure. But I also love what you said about um, having law enforcement come up to you and say, I've made mistakes in the past. Like, I am somebody that believes that majority of people have the ability to change and grow yeah. if we acknowledge where we've failed in the past. And so that's really, like, that's a very significant thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and these are, you know, men and women law enforcement officers that have been through a lot. And some mm -hmm. of them share this thought with me in tears. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't investigate thoroughly because I didn't believe or I, you know, I, everything you just said about the science, I misinterpreted. I thought it was deception. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, the, one of the most common reactions I get. And then um, I did, I received an email a couple of years ago from an officer who, who, you know, shared this uh, concern that they had made so many mistakes. And uh, a couple of years ago, he sent me a note. I just uh, responded to another sexual assault case, and I can't tell you, I, I feel so um, better prepared, and I, I feel so much better about my, myself, um, my profession, uh, my ethics, um, to really be able to deliver a level of trauma-informed care to this particular victim. Amazing. That's that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. You said I do want to come back to the word justice because you brought that yeah. up earlier, and I think that you know so many people think that like justice is when you get that conviction in that sentence, and you know I can sit here and say yeah, it felt pretty darn good to get that. Not gonna lie, but one of the things I was really taught and prepared by Amy Farr yeah. before I went to trial was that 
even if you don't get the conviction, that doesn't mean you're not going to get justice. Look for those moments of justice throughout this. Yeah. And so I think oftentimes, like, you know, if this does, if there isn't an arrest or a prosecution, that only place where the victim may get justice is in that investigation. Yeah. Um, and what are you, I mean, what are kind of your thoughts around that or just what, how justice can look to different individuals? Yeah, um, you know, the, uh, my keynote speech at the Valley Conference in, uh, in San Francisco was justice begins with a trauma-informed approach. Mm -hmm. So if we can get folks um, who provide services to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, or any crime for that matter, if we can get them to recognize that, that we have an opportunity. It's not just a judge or a prosecutor that delivers justice we each have an opportunity to deliver some level of justice in the way that we receive that information, the way that we help them feel physically, psychologically, and emotionally safe in our process. Mm -hmm. That's one level of justice. Absolutely. Right? Uh, and so many survivors in my work said to me, and, and, and I didn't, we didn't make an arrest in every case. We didn't get a conviction. In fact, uh, two of the strongest cases I ever had as, a, as an investigator on sexual assault uh, were, they were acquittals by a jury. Mm you know, who didn't understand the dynamics. Um, so, um, but in those cases, the survivor appreciated that they were supported, that they were believed in the process, and that we did all that we could, but more importantly, the way that they were treated in the process. And I've maintained professional relationships with many survivors uh, through the years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so many experienced the lifelong impacts of trauma. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But have found a way, you know, to move beyond it. Uh, there is courage and hope after trauma. And, um, you know, what I like to share with all of us that do this work is that we contribute to that potential healing. Mm -hmm. um, and we in law enforcement have to recognize that in a, in a way that's uh, more helpful, in a way that's more powerful. And, I, and we're making progress. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, you know, I really credit your work. Um, I remember hearing your keynote. I'm like, oh gosh, that's what Amy said to me before we were prepping. And you're like, well, she probably I probably learned it from her and vice versa. And just how that all works. Amy's an advocate here for the state of Vermont. Yeah. Um, for those who do not know, but just you know, I remember listening to that and being like, oh, this directly affected my trial. Like what he's saying directly affected my trial and how I was able to be in a mindset for it. So. Yeah. It yeah. was very powerful. Well, Amy, like so many uh, advocates that do this work uh, in Vermont, um, you know, and around the country, uh, they're really special. I call them super advocates. Mm -hmm. um, the work that we that, that we do, um, and you know, police and advocates, we we have a tendency to do this a little bit. Uh, that's getting better. Um, but I'll tell you, when we work together, when we have a same message, when a victim survivor comes forward, finds the courage to finally report and comes forward and they hear a consistent supportive message throughout the multidisciplinary team, that message has power. Absolutely. And if we can get everybody on that same page, um, that makes a big difference and can be part of that justice that you're yeah. talking about. Absolutely, those are like those are the things when I look back on that I hang on to, and that then yeah. now I go out and train people on. I'm like, yeah. oh, here's something really cool that you can use, and it yeah. all connects back in. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know like to kind of sh sh shift gears a little bit, I know that for both of us, the co-occurrence of crimes amongst offenders is a top priority. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to our listeners about kind of course of conduct and higher rates of lethality among offenders who are escalating? Um, that's, yeah. yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I do a lot of work, as you've identified, around trauma-informed care in, in our response to domestic violence and sexual assault. 
And one of the things that we can never forget is who causes that trauma? Mm -hmm. Who causes the complex nature of these cases? Uh, who causes all the trauma that someone may experience for a lifetime? And that's the offender. So a big part of what I do um, is make sure that we don't lose sight of that. Um, and, and talk about, uh, these are some of the most manipulative offenders in the criminal justice system. So if we know a little bit more about the offender thought process, if we know a little bit more about how this offender views the world and views their situation, how they use power, control, uh, privilege, and entitlement, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and really you know, recognizing all of that, um, but rarely is the offender, uh, domestic violence offender, someone who just emotionally or physically abuses. But the research and our experience is pretty clear that if an offender is willing to violate that boundary and emotionally abuse and physically abuse a partner, then what we've learned is that they oftentimes are committing interconnected and co-occurring crimes. Absolutely. Those co interconnected and co-occurring crimes can be domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, uh, strangulation and a host of other crime violation of abuse prevention orders um, and so that's what I call an offender course of conduct rarely is that offender just committing one crime yep. and getting uh, police and prosecutors to do what we call what I call a course of conduct investigation so if a domestic violence victim reports domestic violence or we respond to a domestic violence incident Chances are that there have been multiple incidents at, you know, within the, the violence in, in that relationship. There have been multiple incidents. But we were all trained to say, well, what happened tonight? Right. And if we don't look at the context of the violence, if we don't mm -hmm. try to identify who's the bully in, the, in, this, in this situation, who's using power and control, um, then we're missing a big picture. We're missing Absolutely. the big picture. And so getting folks to understand that course of conduct uh, Vermont, like so many other states, has high rates of domestic violence homicide. You know, Vermont is one of the safest states in the country, but year after year, 50% of our homicides are domestic violence related. Yep. That's, that's you know, and, we, and we've worked hard to try to move that needle, but it's consistent here it's in right Vermont. right there, yeah. Um, so when we look at those cases, domestic violence fatality review commissions, uh, when we study this around the country, I, I read the study every year on femicide, the study of women murdered in this country. The overwhelming majority are murdered by someone they know, a current or former partner. Yep. Um, and when we study those, we, we, what we see in serious injury or, or lethality cases, that that offender was engaged in a course of conduct that included the big four. And the big four are domestic violence, sexual assault, strangulation, and stalking. And if that's occurring in the context of the violence, those four things, there's a high potential for serious injury or lethality. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we learn that from tragedy. We learn that from studying the murder of women in this country. Mm -hmm. Somewhere between 1,600 and 1,900 women are murdered every year in this country, and we never really talk about that. We don't talk about that statistic. And they're murdered in single victim, single offender incidents by often, more often than not, the male partner, current or former. Mm -hmm. We can't ignore that. No, we, can't. we have to address that. It's tough stuff to talk about. And so I think a big part of trauma-informed care is understanding that course of conduct, especially for police and prosecutors, and looking beyond that one call. Rarely does a domestic violence victim call the first time violence happens, but more often than not, the 12th, the 15th, the 20th time, if ever. Exactly. So that means if we're only responding to that one call tonight and we're not looking at the context, the totality of the circumstances of that violence, we might get it wrong. 
or that violence might escalate. And that's where we see, um, that, you know, again, the potential for serious injury or lethality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something like from my background with stalking and just, you know, as I'm out there training, like one of the slides I always bring up is I think it's, it's from the Spark Center, but um, I think it's 74% of intimate partner femicides had a component of stalking in the year prior. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, if we just took that seriously when they came yeah. and reported it on the stalking, they might be alive. And, you know, I mean, that's just so important to do that, to do that work and looking at that course of conduct. Yeah. Because if we can stop it here, that person could still be alive. There you go. We've got, we've got to recognize that and appreciate the, you, you know, your voice in this, <clears throat> helping people understand. I think another, another part of that, though, also is recognizing um, this interconnected nature of it. And some of the new data and the research that's coming out around strangulation is showing the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the stalker and, the, and those who strangle um, or use strangulation as part of their power and control, again, a high potential for serious injury or lethality. Of course, you know, strangulation in and of itself is high potential for lethality. But when we see an offender using those kinds of, that kinds of violence, um, uh, you know, we really got to take that seriously. We've mm -hmm. really got to go after that hard. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. We can save lives if we do. Yeah. It's really, it comes yeah. down to that simple of a fact. Yeah. So, yeah. So I know that's one of the things that you also work with is looking at course of conduct and looking at violent, um, sexually violent crimes that are perpetrated by police officers. And what does that work look like? Can you speak mm -hmm. a little bit to that just to kind of educate our listeners? Um, yeah, I mean, I know that we had a homicide here last year. I think that was last year of an officer who murdered his partner. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's a rare thing, but I think it's important for us to talk about. No, I appreciate you bringing it up. It's a tough topic. Yeah. I call this courageous conversations. Mm. You know, we yes. don't like to talk about sex. We don't like to talk about sexual assault. We don't like to talk about domestic violence. Wouldn't it be just easier if we didn't have to have the conversation? And then now when we think about, I'm a proud, I'm proud to have been a police officer for 30 years. I call it a noble profession. And if we're going to continue to call it a noble profession, then we've got to lead the way. We've got to recognize that the power and control that so many offenders use, right, in the, in the, in the violence in a relationship uh, or in stalking, sexual assault, or any of those crimes, that power and control is automatically connected in policing because of the power and authority we're given by law. So Absolutely. it's there. And the overwhelming majority of police don't abuse that power. Um, I believe in the men and women that do this work, um, but there are some that take that power and authority and use it to their advantage, power control, and commit crimes of domestic violence and sexual assault against their partners, against citizens, against uh, uh, you know their spouses, against uh, colleagues. Yep. Um, and it's uh, it's been a problem in our profession for decades, and it's a problem we have to address. Uh, head on. And it, it's, again, a courageous conversation is required. We can't get defensive about this. We have to acknowledge the overwhelming majority of folks do great work, but you cannot ignore the data, the research, the statistics, and the headlines every day uh, of police officers committing domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, and so I have uh, done a great deal of work uh, around this issue. 
Um, I've done a lot of work with the International Association of Chiefs of Police on this, as well as End Violence Against Women International. We mm -hmm. just wrote uh, one of the first model policies in the country, uh, End Violence Against Women International. I co-authored that um, with End Violence Against Women International, and then uh, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, two awesome. years later, followed and created another model policy. Uh, so, uh, you know, the model policy around domestic violence by police officers has been around since the 90s. Okay. And it was, once again, the International Association of Chiefs of Police that led the charge there. Um, so we have to recognize, first thing, that we're not, our profession isn't immune from this. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, there is some concern, uh, you know, given the power and authority of the police and, the, and all of that connection I just talked about, that we have to lead on this. Absolutely. There are new standards, new expectations, and new demands for the way that our society views these crimes, and law enforcement has got to be a leader. And how can we look at our communities? How can we look at victims and survivors of crime and say, trust us with your experience when we, when we don't hold ourselves accountable? So holding ourselves accountable to the high standards of uh, of our profession, but also holding ourselves accountable to the high standards and new expectations around the way we respond to domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, strangulation. Um, we've got to be, we've got to lead in that. Absolutely. And we've got to show our communities that we take these matters seriously, even when it's uh, an offender that wears a badge. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is like, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a question that, like you said, it's a courageous conversation. And I think it's important for listeners to realize, you know, no matter what work situation you're in, whether you're a law enforcement or working in a restaurant or, you know, at the gas station, like there are people that you are working with or interacting with who are, are going to be the offenders. And yeah. it's how do we start to shift this culturally to hold them accountable, to teach them the lessons they need to learn so they do not continue that behavior, like all of those different things. Yeah. So. And then and when you look at policing, you can't have this conversation about police perpetrated domestic violence or sexual assault without recognizing that the police are working within vulnerable communities all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, many offenders who, uh, who commit domestic violence and sexual assault, they're looking for a victim who's vulnerable, who's less likely to report and less likely to be believed. Mm -hmm. So we've got the power and authority piece, we've got the vulnerability piece, this is built right into our work. And so for someone who doesn't have the high ethical standards of the majority of law enforcement, um, to abuse their power in such a significant way, um, you know, it's just got to be policed in a, in a, in a more, um, I, I think, a more proactive way, and that's what we're trying to do. Amazing. Thank you for that work. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, we can't change unless if we look at ourselves as well. Absolutely. It's so important. So I feel like we could sit here and talk for another two hours, <laughs> but I do want to be mindful of time. So as we close today, what would you, you know, like to say to law enforcement and service providers that are listening today just about like the work you're doing and something that you would like to say that's encouraging to them? You know, first it starts with thank you. Um, the work that they do actually helps people heal um, or can help people heal. And that's a, that's a really important thing to do. That's a level of justice that we've got to reimagine justice in that way that justice isn't just about an arrest or a conviction, but the work that the men and women in policing and advocacy do every day makes a difference in, in someone's life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we all got involved in this work. And so I guess my message would be 
um, you know, thank you. The work you do is important, and um, uh, and, it, and it makes a difference in someone's life every day. So that's that's a noble way to spend your your career. Um, and then my message, of course, to all my brothers and sisters in policing, always is uh, stay safe uh, and be well. Um, you know, we've got to make sure that. Um, you know, we think about self-care, uh, make self-care a priority in the work that we do, again, so we understand our own trauma so we can better understand uh, someone else's trauma. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and I always like to close on a positive message to victims and survivors that are listening today. Is there yeah. something you'd like to share as we wind this down with with that group of people, that it's not yeah. always easy to listen to these shows or no, sit with I, no, that? No, I, you know, it, it really, I, I understand that. And um, I guess, you know, the first thing I always say is I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what they experienced. Of course, I hope someone has reminded them every day that it's not their fault. Um, and that they, um, you know, uh, have to empower, uh, they have to be empowered to do what's best for themselves. Um, and some people report, some people don't, some people speak out. Um, but, um, you know, I guess uh, my message to victims and survivors is, is just that, is uh, do what you need to do to heal. Um, recognize that it's not your fault. Um, and, um, and then I always thank victims and survivors. I'm, I started this conversation out by telling you I'm here because of what I learned from victims and survivors, what I learned from advocates, and so your voice is powerful. If, if that's a decision and choice that you want to make. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, many of us uh, that I know around the country have learned directly from victims and survivors, and that's, uh, um, that, that leads to the work that I do today. So, yeah. so thank you to them, too, uh, for, um, for helping us understand um, the power uh, of victim-survivor voices is an important part of the training, policy, um, and work that we do to ensure public safety. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you. I mean, thank you for being, like through this conversation, I just keep coming back to that. Like, thank you for being a deep listener and for learning from that. And um, just thank you for your work. Because as I said, like, I know I'm sitting here as a direct result of it throughout many different people who have received your trainings over the years, not only here in Vermont, but out in Washington as well. And so, thank you. Well, thank Always you very much. kind of nice. I don't get to have anybody on or people on very often that like directly affected my life, but I oh, can say that you have. So that means a lot thank you me. from the bottom I, of my heart. I appreciate that. Thank you yes. very much. And thank you all for joining us today. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Tom Tremblay's work, you can go to his website, tomtremblayconsulting.com, um, and we'll have that up on the um, information for the show as well. And always, if you have any ideas or questions, you can email me, Anna, at standupresources.com. Um, I'm your host, Anna Nassa, of this bi-monthly show. Thank you so much, Tom, for being here. And look forward to seeing you next time on The Mend. Be well, be strong, and goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.